This is the Great Human Chronicle. I'm Anvik. It is the 23rd of July, and so that means it's time for the Olympics, which in turn means I'm going to watch sports that I'd never watch again and cheer on people whose names just stick with me for some reason because there's no athlete from my country in that event, and now I'm emotionally invested. Okay, let's get started. Back in the 20s, 1920s that is, it was common for people to write books about their time in the modern mental asylum. These books were meant to be modes of self-reflection, but they were also documents to show the world what the modern mental asylum was. It was meant to be a place for healing. Philosopher William James once called these books accounts from within an insane person's psychology. And for better or for worse, that's what they were seen as. Therefore, when Zelda Fitzgerald, the writer, the painter, the Montgomery Bell turned New York socialite turned ballerina, the famous wife of the famous F. Scott Fitzgerald, the definition of a famous wife in the early 20th century, the flapper, an icon, the woman who did what she wanted when she wanted. When that Zelda Fitzgerald checked into Phipps Clinic at John Hopkins University, she was asked to write a biography about herself. But because she was that Zelda Fitzgerald, she wrote a novel instead. The novel which came out, titled Save Me the Waltz, was a semi-autobiographical novel about one woman's journey through fame in a man's world. It was, in many ways, Zelda's journey through fame in a man's world. Like Zelda, the protagonist Alabama Beggs marries a soldier stationed in the Deep South. The soldier, David Knight, aims to become a painter just like F. Scott Fitzgerald had dreams of becoming an author. From there, the book charts David's rise as a painter and Alabama's downfall as she struggles to grapple with the newfound fame and attention while undergoing a crisis of identity. In Zelda's life, this identity crisis happened because she lived a dual life. One as the eccentric Alabama-born southern girl, full of charm and wit, and another as the real-life public incarnation of Scott Fitzgerald's heroines. Scott drew heavily, and I mean heavily, upon his wife for his writing. She was the source of several of his most famous plots and also the source for a lot of his characters. Most of his female leads were simply iterations on his image of Zelda. And he wasn't subtle about this either. The public knew that when Scott wrote about Gloria in The Beautiful and the Damned, he was writing about Zelda. They knew that when he wrote about Isabel in This Side of Paradise, he was writing about Zelda. Whenever he wrote about any and every one of his worldly heroines with otherworldly appeals, they knew he was writing about Zelda. Or at least they thought he was writing about Zelda. And that's what mattered. It didn't matter what Zelda was really like, because her legacy as a tragic heroine was cemented. Eventually, this duality broke her. The marriage was already deteriorating thanks to Zelda's erratic behavior and Scott's violent drinking. By the time Zelda checked into the Phipps clinic, she and Scott were no longer speaking. She had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and Scott had left her for Hollywood. This was supposed to be the end of Zelda. But it wasn't. At Phipps clinic, Zelda had what can be only described as a creative renaissance. She finished the first draft of Save Me the Walls in just five weeks. 
and sent it to Scott's editor Max Perkins without telling Scott about the book. She was finally going to tell the world her story her way. Perkins though sent the book to Scott and things hit the fan. Scott was furious. He claimed that you stole my asylum material. He called her a third rate writer. Which was ironic because on several occasions Scott blatantly copied Zelda's letters to him word for word to use in his books. On other occasions he stole her diaries to use as material. When Zelda went into labor, Scott apparently picked up a notebook and recorded everything she said to use in The Great Gatsby. Zelda was livid. She screamed, "Is this your material?" to which Scott simply said, "Everything The original manuscript of Save Me the Walls went missing. Scott made several edits to the book. He left Zelda's spellings and grammatical errors in the book, but he removed every mention of him that he did not like. Anything that was contrary to the image that he built for himself was removed, and everything that helped the book lose credibility stayed. He wasn't going to let her tell his story, but he was going to tell hers. Two years after Save Me the Walls was released, Scott published Tender is the Night, a book about a heroine's struggles with schizophrenia. The book had intimate details of Zelda's breakdowns, and it painted her as this broken and deranged person who really couldn't be trusted. The psychiatrist also apologized to Scott for letting Zelda publish Save Me the Walls. They believed that as the sane member of the relationship, Scott had the right to decide what she did. how she did what she said how she said and why she said it. scott's popularity also led to tender is the night becoming the definitive piece about zelda's asylum experiences once again his story became her story when she tried so hard to say otherwise she was disempowered infantilized and broken and just like how zelda had been scott's plus one all her life save me the walls became the plus one to tender is the night a side story for the interested almost every zelda fitzgerald biography begins not with her birth or some epical moment from her childhood it begins with her first meeting with scott almost every description of every painting by zelda fitzgerald mentions her writer husband when her books are published they often note scott's help even though there wasn't supposed to be any Zelda's fight to be the main character of her story isn't unique. You've heard this same story a hundred times with a hundred different names. But for this specific story, I want to offer an alternative ending. In the 80s, 1980s that is, Shigeru Miyamoto was working on a video game that would change the world of entertainment forever. This game was called The Super Mario Brothers. and its eccentric blue jumpsuit wearing protagonist was going to become synonymous with the word video games at the same time miyamoto was developing another game at nintendo a far more personal venture that aimed to encapsulate the excitement he felt as a child when he aimlessly explored the caves jungles villages and hillsides around his town of sonobe kyoto the concept of this game was revolutionary until then All home video games were just portable versions of arcade games. 
Even a game of Mario could be finished in less than a quarter of an hour and was just about getting the highest score possible. This new game though would make you go on a journey. A journey that required you to travel through dungeons and maze-like caves to obtain items and fight foes. It wasn't about the points or the length, it was about the journey. You would have to save the game and come back to it. Saving the game was another thing that did not exist until this point. When Miyamoto and team were naming the game, someone suggested the name of the wife of F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda. Miyamoto did not know much about the woman, but he liked the name. He found it pleasant and significant. It was suitable for a princess and for a gaming franchise about the stories and legends of the several reincarnations of this princess. Thus, The Legend of Zelda was born. The original Legend of Zelda went on to break almost every major record it possibly could. More importantly, the franchise changed how games were made. Today, every video game tries to tell a story of some sort and this is thanks to The Legend of Zelda. The franchise has gone on to reinvent video games over and over, making it one of the most popular and important gaming series of all time. Every video game is trying to do a Legend of Zelda, always. The Legend of Zelda games have changed their visuals, their iconography and their storylines. But what has remained constant is that the player always goes on a journey. A journey that is unique to them and only them. Zelda Fitzgerald never got to tell her own story, but every one of the hundreds of millions of players of the game named after her have gotten to tell theirs. Slightly ironically or fittingly, her longest lasting legacy has nothing to do with Scott at all. There is probably no more fitting a conclusion to her story, to her journey, to her legend. Hello, thank you so much for listening. I hope you liked that. If you like this and want to support me as I try to explain the world through history and art and culture, you can support the show in all the ways people support shows like this. You can also follow us on Instagram at Great Human Chronicle. There's a lot of content just like this, but faster paced and funnier over there. And if you like this, you'll definitely like that. This episode of The Great Human Chronicle was written, researched, produced, directed, performed and edited by Anvik Singh. The music in this episode was by Martin Hall, Lawrence Lee Murphy, Cody Decker, Carvings, August Mackey and Amber John. The theme song is by Mark Torch and all artwork is by me. Thank you so much for your time, your energy and your attention. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>